Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Belly pain, heartburn, blood in your stool, or other gastrointestinal problems, a GI doctor's services are invaluable. Digestion, absorption, and elimination of waste. GI issues, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to the 22nd season of On Call with the Prairie Doc medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight, we will be discussing GI issues. Thank you for joining us. In the studio this evening on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings is Dr. Teresa Wee Trudeau from Avera Medical Group Specialty Care, Brookings, and Dr. Ali Zakaria from Monument Health Gastroenterology. Welcome, doctors. Thank you for joining us. Um, Teresa, you've been on the show before. Mm -hmm. Teresa's our general surgeon um, who does a lot of gastroenterology in a small community, yes. it, as it turns out. So explain a little bit about what you do um, that maybe the general public doesn't know about. Of course, you're the one that shows up in the middle of the night if right. someone's got appendicitis, but what do you see in clinic that has to do with GI stuff? Oh, we see a lot of stuff in clinic. Yeah. Um, constipation, diarrhea, uh, anal issues as well, mm -hmm. um, incontinence is a big one that we tend to deal with, as well as itching and anything else that people have issues with with their GI tract. Another one is um, difficulty swallowing. Mm -hmm. I saw a couple of those today. Yeah. And so, yes, with the general surgery, I do get a fair amount of gastroenterology yeah. too. Yeah, especially in a smaller community Correct. where we don't have gastroenterology. You're our, you're our endoscopist yep. and, and do a lot of that. So, mm -hmm. um, And then Dr. Zakaria from Rapid City, thanks for joining us. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career path, and what, um, what type of advanced endoscopy you do with your training. Yeah, thank you for having me. <clears throat> this is a great opportunity. So yeah, I initially came from Jordan and I did my uh, medical school there and then I moved to uh, to the state and to, to Michigan in 2015. I did my internal medicine training and then I did general GI training. And then I did an intervention a year at uh, Tampa, University of South Florida Open Cancer Center. And that is a, an extra year of interventional training where you do extra training for high-risk procedures, such, such as endoscopic ultrasound, uh, ERCP sampling and biopsies, and you know multiple other high-risk procedures or uh, minimally invasive procedures, we, uh, we, we kind of uh, call them. And then I moved to Rapid City and I'm establishing a gastroenterology practice at Monument Health currently. Yeah, great. So some of the things that you talked about are things that not, not even every gastroenterologist is able to do. So things like evaluating of masses in difficult places like the pancreas and the esophagus, right? So can you talk about that? How has that changed um, how patients can get that kind of care? Yeah, this is actually very, very, uh, you know, promising field now. It has been going for a long period of time, but it's getting more advanced and advanced. 
and especially when we're connecting the, the oncology or the cancer with the gastroenterology, I mean, we are the biggest asset for any cancer center in terms of providing them with a proper staging, proper diagnosis, extra tissue sample for genetic testing and, and molecular kind of testing to get targeted therapy for special cancers or different kind of cancers. Mm -hmm. So here we have our cancer care institution at, at Monument Health and the partner between us and them had made their life and you know the patient's uh, service much, much better. Mm -hmm. Because there is any anything within the gastrointestinal tract or even alongside the tract of the mm -hmm. gastrointestinal system. For example, patient comes in sometimes with lymph nodes in the mediastinum or around the esophagus or you know masses in the abdomen outside the GI tract, and a still can get a sample for them, give them accurate diagnosis. They send it to pathology. The pathology will evaluate that even more mm -hmm. and get them an accurate diagnosis, and, and they can run special test staining. And that will give them, you know, uh, an, an, an opportunity to give targeted therapy for a particular diagnosis. Yeah. And that's where actually the oncology is heading now. Yeah, great, wonderful. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions for tonight's discussion about GI issues. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. All right, so I guess we'll get to some viewer questions and just see where that takes us here. Um, we got a question from email. Oh, this is a good question. Can strong antibiotics meant to treat H. pylori cause Crohn's disease? Um, not one I've heard. I guess, Ali, I'll let you take that one. I guess let's talk about first, like what's H. pylori? Why are we giving antibiotics? And then maybe we can talk about any problems with that. Yeah, H. pylori is a type of bacterial infection that can affect the stomach. It, it lives in this acidic environment and can cause inflammation or irritation in the stomach. And it actually became more famous lately because there's a lot of studies that show that H. pylori is a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. So meaning that it increased the risk of gastric cancer and that's where we got more attention to treat it and actually eradicate it. Yeah. The problem with the H. pylori is that it's such a resistant bacteria mm -hmm. and the success rate in eradicating H. pylori is 85%. Um, it depends on the medication that we use and the algorithm that we follow. So physicians in general, when they get suspicion that the patient come in with presentation of you know, dyspepsia or not feeling well on his stomach, they do mm -hmm. an endoscopy, they find, they find an irritation in the stomach or we would call it gastritis, we take a biopsy or we do a stool antigen test and that will tell us if the mm -hmm. patient has this bacterial infection. The next step is to be very meticulous about how you approach treating that. And the most important thing is to try eradicating it from the first approach, from the first time. Mm -hmm. So we usually we ask if the patient had ever exposed to a certain antibiotics. And if yes, then we will pick and choose different kind of uh, regimen. And, and now we, there's a triple therapy, there's quadruple therapy. It's multiple pills, multiple you know medications, some of them mm -hmm. antibiotics, some of them acid suppression medication. And when we give them, we give them for a long period of time, almost like two weeks. So we used to give it for 10 days. Now I favor you know higher mm -hmm. doses for 14 days. 
to be more successful in eradicating the bacteria. The most important thing is that once you get treated for it, we recommend that you have a follow-up test to confirm eradication. Right. But that's the whole purpose, is to make sure that we actually treated the bacteria. A lot of patients, they don't follow up. They don't get the test to complete eradication, confirmation of the eradication. Mm. And they might have symptoms again, and they were they would be they would assume that oh I had the infection again maybe but maybe you haven't even cleared the infection sure sure and the the emailer did ask about if there's a link between treatment of H pylori and Crohn's disease I've not ever heard that are you aware of any link no I'm yeah. not I'm not I think there is a link there is a lot of you know theories about patients who takes antibiotics where they change their microbiome sure and this is the new thing is that we have been focusing a lot of our research and study to link the microbiome and autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. We found, I mean, we know that Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease a little bit more common on, you know, advanced or developed countries mm -hmm. because of, you know, the lack of exposure of certain, you know, pathogens early in life. And that is the theory where it comes that when you get a lot of antibiotics, maybe you will get change in the flora that would increase mm. your risk of autoimmune disease. Okay. But is there a, a you know direct link between treating H. pylori and Crohn's disease development? Yeah. I do not think so. Yeah, good. We do have a segment later about microbiome science too to, to follow that up. Um, Teresa, I got a question for you. We had an emailer saying, I take omeprazole once a day. How long can I take this medicine for my GI issues? And can I also take other medicines like Tums if I get symptoms right. that day. So I mean, this is a commonly used medicine. Yeah. Um, omeprazole is very commonly used, um, even over the counter. Mm -hmm. And so patients can basically take it of their own free will. We do like to do as short of a course of omeprazole mm -hmm. as possible, just to not suppress the acid for long, long periods of time. But there are some people who do unfortunately need it for longer periods of time. And so it really, tends to be based on their symptoms, but we try to get them to as low of a dose as mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was a study that came out that I get, still get asked mm -hmm. about all the time about a link between this type of medicine and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. which we, we think is probably probably been debunked, like not, not a well done um, article. But at the same time, I felt like it was a good reminder to mm -hmm. say, if we can get people off of these, we should. You know, Correct. sometimes we do start medicines are not good at stopping them. Right. Yeah. Would you agree, Ali? Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think PBI is the most medication that has been recently attacked with all of the studies to kind mm -hmm. of see what kind mm -hmm. of side effect because it's commonly used. It's right. a great medication. It works. Mm -hmm. It has a pretty safe side effect profile in general. Mm -hmm. But it's still, I say that if you really need it, you need it. If you yeah, don't right. need it, you should not keep it. Right, we used right. to have that practice in the hospital where everyone goes home on PBI for prophylaxis. I'm a kind of a kind of spectacle about sending someone on a prophylactic. There is an indication for a medication, and right. you should talk to the doctor. What is the indication for me to be on a PBI? Mm -hmm. And when you become someone who will need acid suppression medication for a long period of time, then what are options that you have? Do you have other options? Do you have like you know a surgical or endoscopic intervention that can mm -hmm. help you so you can stop the medication? And we have a lot of those. So right, yeah, right. And I would say 
can you take a Tums? Yes, absolutely. Yes. But I always tell my patients, if you're having to do that every day, mm -hmm. I want to know because maybe we need to Adjust revisit something. this, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Good. We have, there's a couple questions that we'll maybe tackle at once about C. diff. So we had one emailer who talked about having C. diff twice this year. How can it happen? And then another caller asked about new and developing treatments for C. diff. So gosh, we're getting the hard antibiotic questions right off the bat, aren't we? This is another bugger to treat. Um, so C, Ollie, why don't you take this to start? What's C. diff? Why is it so hard to treat? So C. diff, again, is one of those other infections that is very important for the healthcare system in general, mm -hmm. especially hospitals and, and admissions. And because it affects mostly elderly, mostly hospitalized patients, it comes in and it's difficult to treat as well. It can form spore where you actually can be a carrier for the disease mm -hmm. or carrier for the bacteria, but you're not actually having an infection. And the most important thing for you know patients and physicians or treating providers is to understand that you might have the bacteria in your body, but it's not causing any problems. Right. So having a bacteria or a test positive doesn't mean that you truly have C. diff infection or active infection. So differentiating between those two entities is very important. When you have the spore or the bacteria that is producing the toxin and you are symptomatic, meaning that you have a lot of diarrhea, abdominal pain, maybe bleeding, mm -hmm. fever, severe abdominal distension, sometimes can get to a major complication. We call mm -hmm. it toxic megacolon, where you might need surgery mm -hmm. even to remove your colon. So that's the spectrum of disinfection when it happens from a carrier status to a need mm -hmm. for emergent surgery. It usually happens in someone who's immunocompromised, who required antibiotics for another reason to treat an infection or you know bacteremia. And then when it develops, it becomes very challenging to treat because still you need antibiotics, and sometimes the spore form of the bacteria become difficult to 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 eradicate. Mm -hmm. We have multiple treatment options, and you know the, the the multiple societies had put excellent guidelines, and they updated frequently because it's a major health care mm -hmm. problem that has a lot of cost to our health system, and we need to be on top of it. So the guidelines pretty clear. It will guide the general provider, the internist, the hospitalist, the gastroenterologist, even the infectious disease. Uh, providers that, okay, if, if this is the first infection, mild to moderate, moderate to severe, mm -hmm. how we can treat it. If the patient gets a recurrent infection or relapse, there is a difference between a relapse and a recurrent infection. And then you treat it accordingly. And if they have a third infection, then that's when become more intense how we can approach it. And there is this new entity that we call it fecal microbiota transplant, mm -hmm. where you actually get a healthy stool from another patient or a donor or a bank, mm -hmm. and then you install that in the colon of a patient with recurrent C. diff. And we have seen excellent results in, in terms of treatment and, and response. Yeah. And so relapse and recurrence are actually kind of common, so that's not surprising, right? Like, what, what, what's cure rate with a first course of vancomycin? It's probably along the lines of H. pylori. Um, yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of people who don't get cured right away. Um, I, it, it's interesting, fecal transplant, we learn all this and we know that it's very effective. 
I've found that my patients who have maybe met criteria, it's really hard to access in our part of it the is. world though. Yeah. You have to go to a special center for it, mm -hmm. right? Have you had that experience, Teresa? I have not had to luckily <clears throat> yeah. treat somebody with a fecal transplant, so, mm -hmm. I, but I do know that it is difficult for them to get. Um, to find donors sometimes mm -hmm. is difficult. I know that I had one patient who had talked about their family was looking to donate mm -hmm. and, um, but it can be difficult. Yeah, there's a, some, it's not quite as practically easy as we would like it right. to be sometimes. So um, we'll do one more quick question before we move on to our first role. And we had a caller ask, is gastritis chronic or will it heal itself over time? So that's another common condition that you might see on an endoscopy right. tree. So what's, it, what's gastritis, what causes it, and what do we do about it? So gastritis is inflammation in the lining of the stomach. Mm -hmm. um, there can be chronic gastritis, and to some degree, a lot of people do have that. Mm -hmm. um, but whether they're symptomatic or not is what makes a difference. And so even though you have chronic gastritis doesn't mean that we necessarily need to treat it. Now there are varying degrees of it as well mm -hmm. and so once we get to like a chronic atrophic gastritis which even appears a little bit different, it appears different on endoscopy then there is the increased risk for gastric cancers mm -hmm. with that as well so it gets followed differently and treated differently. Mm -hmm. And treatment is those omeprazole right. type medicines Correct. like we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, our gut and intestines hold billions of bacteria, many of which help protect us from viruses and other pathogens. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer talked with an SDSU microbiome researcher about the importance of our gut microbiomes as well as what they do for everyone. Rane Kaushik is a professor at SDSU who studies the intestine and gut microbiomes. So microbiome is a basically a collective name given to uh, all the bacteria, viruses, fungi, which are normally present in the intestine. And their major role is to provide protection against different pathogens and to provide protection. Professor Kaushik says the microbiomes hold trillions of bacteria, but not all of them protect the gut and intestines. His work includes finding bacteria that do protect, and those findings have produced probiotics for various diseases. We can identify certain uh, microbiome which can provide protection on Salmonella, Shigella, so we are working on different bacterial pathogens and how we can use the microbiome set of microbiome to protect against these infectious disease. How Professor Kaushik obtains microbiomes is through feces sent to him, where he then creates a library for these microbiomes. We uh, ask people to donate the feces, we, we process them, and then we make sure that we are identifying specific type of bacteria. We develop a culture system where we can uh, uh, separate them out and then can grow them individual bacterial species, and then that way we create a set of library. He also says the microbiomes are being studied intensively as new research is coming out that they play a larger role than most people think. A uh, lot of studies are coming out from different labs which shows that uh, interstellar microbiome actually play a very important role in, in allergies, uh, in, in even depression, uh, some of the diseases related to brain. So they have far more effects than only restricted to the intestinal tract. Overall, the probiotics that people get from doctors come from the hard work of researchers like Professor Kaushik. 
the type of work we do is very, very important for developing new therapeutics and preventive measures for the enteric disease. Great segment. So much research on microbiome and its links to other other parts of our health that I think we'll know a lot more in 10 or 20 years. But we have a lot of caller questions, so we're gonna do a, a round that we'll try to answer these as quick as we can and get through as many questions as we can, guys, all right? So let's see, we've got um, a caller from Rapid City, Teresa, who's wondering if magnesium supplements are good for digestion, and what, if so, what form is best? So. There's a lot of magnesium products, yes. so what might they be talking about? So, um, magnesium, it comes in multiple different forms. Yeah. Probably the most widely available form is magnesium oxide. Right. Um, if you just go to Walmart and buy one, that's probably what you're getting. Mm -hmm. And how it probably is linked to more of the digestive health is that it actually causes you to have more ball movements. Mm -hmm. And so it, if you're irregular or if you're more constipated, you could become more regular with using magnesium oxide. Mm -hmm. um, it is a mineral that's needed in our body anyway, but the magnesium oxide form doesn't get absorbed as well as mm -hmm. other magnesium forms like glycinate or mm -hmm. not necessarily citrate, that is more of along the oxide type. Right. Yeah, so. I, that's what a question, you know, I if, if patients come to me with a new complaint of, frequent stools or more diarrhea, first order businesses, what are you taking that I don't know about because magnesium's right. a common offender that way, good. Um, okay, uh, Ollie, we had a 60-year-old woman who has endometrial cancer um, two years ago, stage 1A she was specific. She had a recent PET CT scan and the doctor said, my whole intestinal tract glowed indicating inflammation. What does that mean? So it depends on the type. We've seen this in patients who get endometrial or you know gynecological cancer who get treated with chemo radiation. I'm mm. not sure how she was treated, but if she got treated with radiation, there's an entity we call it post-radiation enteritis mm. or you know gastroenteritis or enteritis, and then in, in particular in her case, if the small bowel is is, is, is lighting up, and that is basically the effect of radiation on the small bowel. Mm. The most common form that we see is actually radiation proctitis in males who right. get prostate issues and they get radiation, they get bleeding per rectum or pain in that area because of you know the changes in the mucosa of, of the rectum. In her case, I think it's most likely that's what it is if she got chemo radiation, sorry, in particular radiation yeah. therapy to that area. If she hadn't got radiation, then she might need farther evaluation of what could potentially that be. Is there something else going on? Does she have a, I mean, PET scan is basically uh, an, an image that takes glucose to a hyperactive area. Mm -hmm. So this area is active, is either because of inflammation, maybe she has another reason for, sure. for, for, for that to happen. Maybe not related to her cancer. Sure, okay. Um, Teresa, we had an email or ask, are results mm -hmm. obtained from, I'm gonna say home colon cancer screening kits reliable? So they're better than nothing. Yeah. 
um, but there still is false positives mm -hmm. and there are also false negatives. And so it is to be used with caution in terms of if you're having symptoms, this is not a proper testing right. for you. If you have an increased risk for colon cancer, you also should not be using them. Yeah, yeah, really for average risk people Correct. and should know, know what those differences are. Good. Um, Ali, we had an emailer. Um, this is another a good complicated question. I had a Whipple procedure about 10 years ago based on the recommendation from surgeons to remove a cyst from the head of my pancreas. I now experience brief episodes of sharp pain in my upper abdomen below my rib cage that goes away after about 30 seconds. Could that be related to his prior Whipple and, sh and should the patient be concerned? What would you say to this patient? Yes, I mean, Whipple procedure is one of the biggest abdominal surgeries that they remove mm -hmm. the head of the pancreas along. It depends on the type of the Whipple procedure the patient underwent. There is like a pyloric preserving Whipple where they leave the stomach as it is. But in general, it entails taking part of the duodenum, the head of the pancreas, the bile duct, and, and that blood supply and innervation of that area. And there will be reconnection of, of, of uh, the, the bile duct into that area. Sometimes people will have anastomotic stricture or you know adhesions or or uh if they remove the gallbladder maybe they have some biliary pain maybe mm -hmm. she has some you know intra intrabiliary pathology so yeah it could be related to post whipple procedure intervention some of the patient after whipple again it depends on the type of whipple they have what we call it bile reflux where bile mm -hmm. comes back into the stomach easier because you lost your pylorus if you had that standard whipple and they have what we call it bile gastritis and they will have sharp pain or you know mm -hmm. the gastritis pain that we just mentioned different type of gastritis but that's a type of a chemical gastritis due to continuous bile exposure to that area yeah so lots of things can go wrong after a major surgery like that definitely worth getting checked out um, we had an email or a question just for you Teresa at what point is surgery required for repeated diverticulitis Oh, that, that's a... <laughs> Maybe not an easy question. Right, right. <laughs> um, so it really depends. Yeah. Um, it is something that is so individualized for each person because there are risks, of course, of so associated with surgery, and it depends on how bad your diverticulitis is. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've had a major complication from diverticulitis, it's a quicker route to surgery, mm -hmm. but still not a definitive route to surgery all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, a person can have an abscess from a microperforation and they still might not need surgery anymore. Mm -hmm. Previously, years ago, they would have had surgery. Mm -hmm. um, also previously, if a person had more than four bouts of diverticulitis, they were recommended to have surgery. But now we recommend looking at how were those bouts? Mm -hmm. Were you able to just, were you able to take antibiotics? Did you have to miss work? Were you hospitalized? There's just a lot of things that go into it. So it's very individualized mm -hmm. and there's not a set number of how many you need to, how many bouts you need to have before you have surgery. Yeah, not that simple. No. You know, it, it's something, diverticulitis, like this is kind of, we think of it as a simple thing, but mm -hmm. so much has changed even in, Correct. I mean, even what I do in primary care, mm -hmm. we do less antibiotics for mild exactly. diverticulitis anymore. So our knowledge changes, this is a really good example of that. Um, Ali, we had an emailer ask about um, eosinophilic esophagitis. So can you give us just a, a glimpse at what that is? And they, their question is, what is the long-term outlook or prognosis for eosinophilic esophagitis? So again, this is one of the new diseases that we have been noticing that is 
getting more more popular and we have been diagnosing a lot of these patients the important thing is to differentiate between eosinophilic esophagitis in particular or eosinophilic gastroenteritis where it involves other segment of the gi mm. tract so the eosinophilic esophagitis what we know about it is an allergy where you have a lot of eosinophils a type of a cells that attack the esophagus and cause inflammation and that inflammation can become chronic that can change the caliber, the texture, the mucosal covering of the esophagus. Most common presentation, young patient who comes in with food impaction, but a lot of patients, they come in with difficulty swallowing, sometimes ER visit for food impaction. Uh, we know so far that, you know, diet has been the most common culprit in causing eosinophilic esophagitis and based on allergy kind of algorithm or uh, idea that certain food can cause this inflammation. So we usually, the, the, the best way is to do elemental diet, which is extremely difficult. So what we change mm -hmm. is that we do six food elimination diet, and we get a little bit better that we can do four food elimination diet, or it depends on the patient, how they are willing to engage with you and, and do that elimination diet. Uh, the most common is egg, milk, uh, and, and, and those are the two that we usually say that if you eat a lot of those two type of food, start with them, see how that were, uh, your response will be to that. Of course, acid reflux has been associated with worsening of those symptoms as well. And we treat eosinophilic esophagitis in certain patients with uh, acid suppression medication for certain mm -hmm. course. The target for me when I treat patient with eosinophilic esophagitis to have a control on their symptoms, which is very important, but also I want to control their histology. I want to make sure that their inflammation subsides because if you leave them uh, or you leave the inflammation uncontrolled or going the patient will have stricture they will have narrowing they will have complication in the long run mm. and we got lucky enough that now we have fda approved monoclonal antibodies and a biological agent mm. for 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 esophagitis resistant to ppi or topical steroids mm -hmm. so it's a spectrum again and and the patient <clears throat> should follow food elimination acid suppression topical steroids and in most resistant severe cases then we can use biological agent and we have some of them with excellent response. Yeah, so good treatment options. I feel like the handful of patients I have with this disease mm -hmm. do eventually get good disease control, but it might take some time. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had a caller wondering what kind of doctor they should go to if they're full after three or four bites. Might it have to do with a stomach or esophagus? Um, so this is a consult I might send you across Correct. to you, Teresa. What can cause that early fullness or early full sensation? Mm -hmm. So there's a number of things that can cause that early full sensation. Um, it could be from the stomach. Uh, a person could have a gastroparesis type picture where they are just not moving food through their stomach and mm -hmm. so there's still food in there from previous meals and after just three to four bites they're full. But we also want to evaluate for other things that can cause that and one thing that we are concerned about is like a mass growing. Mm -hmm. And so when a person comes in with early satiety we do need to evaluate to make sure that there's not something bad going on first and then work through the other possibilities. Right. So a lot of those patients will probably get a, a scope yep, with a you, scope. and then there's some imaging studies that might Correct. help. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. Well, while a food allergy and food intolerance have become more commonplace, sometimes those two can be confused for each other. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke with a registered dietitian to help define the difference. Mary Aukis is a registered dietitian with Sanford Health, and she helps patients understand food intolerances. 
food intolerance would be something that um, you're, that some people have a reaction to certain food um, items. Um, it's not always going to be a reaction the first time. It may come um, after having multiple times or depending on the amount of it. Patients usually go to AUKUS after getting tested by their allergist. The dietitian would work on the diet end of it through the allergist doing those testing. The biggest question she deals with is the difference between an allergy and an intolerance. She says an allergy will affect the immune system and sometimes cause anaphylactic shock, while an intolerance will not be very serious. So you definitely on a food allergy, you want to avoid that food at all costs because you have a food allergy. Or an intolerance would be something that potentially you could handle um, a little bit differently working with a dietitian um, to help to see where you're um, going with that. A good example of the difference is with the most common intolerance people think of, lactose. Lactose intolerance, you're lacking this lactase enzyme that breaks down the lactose. So then you can do some different things with your diet, possibly to be able to still consume lactose, where milk allergy would be an allergy to milk or other dairy products that is affected, again, by the immune system and it will cause some type of a, a reaction in your body. August says if someone is allergic or intolerant to a certain nutrient, the registered dietitian would help them figure out what supplements they should be eating to replace the allergen. There could be a potential that you need to supplement with nutrients, micronutrients, uh, macronutrient kind of options to get you that you're not able to consume, so you need to find um, supplementation. And she concludes by saying if someone thinks they have an intolerance, they should check with their primary care physician before advancing to the next step. It's important to know or to be tested and to find out if it's a true allergy um, or if it is just an intolerance. Good segment. I feel like we hear a lot about food intolerances, and there probably is a lot of confusion about allergy intolerances and, and that kind of thing. Ali, when you have patients that you're trying to have do elimination diets, how long do you how long a trial do you ask them to do on each elimination diet for most symptoms? So for example, it depends again what we're dealing with. Like yeah. for example, synophilic esophagitis, um, I usually tell them like you have to get a trial and, and, and you know trial and error. Mostly we follow clinically and see how their clinical symptoms mm -hmm. improving. Once they improve clinically, then that would give me a hint. Okay, so you improved clinically. Let's try to introduce one diet at a certain time and give it like a week and mm -hmm. see. If your symptoms recur, most probably that is the culprit and you need to stop it and, and that's it. You're not gonna come back to that diet again. Mm -hmm. And that's we're talking about allergy. If we're talking about, for example, celiac disease, which is gluten sensitivity, mm -hmm. you should be gluten-free forever, not even a touch of gluten. So right. it's, it's a done thing once you confirm that diagnosis. Yeah. If we're talking about intolerance, yeah, well, you, you got to tell the patient, you know, you're someone who's not going to do well if you take lactose-containing products. You have two options. Either you take lactate supplement right. so you can digest lactose, or you stop taking lactose, or you just live with the symptoms if you really like what you eat. For example, someone doesn't want to give ice cream for whatever reason, and they don't want to take lactate, and they are okay with mild symptoms. Yeah. It's not harmful. It's just something that you get to, you know, yeah. so which... 
Wait, something you want to know about yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> if someone comes with celiac, I will tell him, no gluten. Right. And that you're going to harm yourself. There's a harm of taking gluten if you have celiac. Yeah, different things. Good. Well, Teresa, we've had a couple questions about fiber specifically, which is like a common thing that we might try for GI symptoms. Right. Um, we had someone ask about what type of fiber is best. Um, what We had someone ask, is there a maximum amount of fiber someone should eat? So mm -hmm. like, what does fiber do in our GI tract? What can it help? And then maybe we'll talk about those questions. So fiber, um, is really good. It helps to regulate your bowels. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I utilize fiber a little bit differently um, depending on what the person is coming sure. in for. Um, most of the time, people are having constipation, mm -hmm. and I recommend that they use a powder form of fiber so that they can also get a little bit more water in their diet as well. Um, but it just helps to bring in some extra water into the stools and soften them. Mm -hmm. Now, if a person comes in with fecal incontinence, mm -hmm. which where they're not able to control their stools, now we wanna thicken them up a little bit more. And so I use maybe a tablet form or a capsule form so that it has that extra ability to absorb the extra fluid mm -hmm. that is in their stool already. Now, the maximum, I mean, there really, I don't, there isn't really a, a maximum mm -hmm. that a person can get. We, most of us are way below the minimum that we should have, um, but when you're increasing the fiber in your diet, which is the more important part of it, you should do it slowly mm. because there are some social consequences that come with it <laughs> um, and people can, they a lot of times stop because they start getting cramping or mm -hmm. they start passing more gas mm -hmm. and it is very good to have in your diet, but you just need to do it slowly. Got it, that's good advice. Um, let's see, we had a caller, um, oh, let's do this one. I'm in my 70s, um, having some more GI problems. Um, had blood work showing maybe I have autoimmune disease, although rheumatology didn't come up with a diagnosis. The caller wonders, could celiac disease be the cause of what's causing that abnormal blood work um, and, and any new treatment? So I guess, Talk about autoimmune disease of the bowel, Ali, a little bit. Um, hard to hard to maybe be specific as an answer to this question, but I mean, I'll just kind of give you a kind of a spectrum again. I like yeah. when we talk about GI diseases, and then there's a spectrum of those diseases. And an inflammatory bowel disease or autoimmune disease of the GI tract can be again on a long spectrum affecting different parts of the GI tract. Celiac disease is basically affecting the first part of the small bowel mm -hmm. called the duodenum, where you have blunting and abnormality because of gluten where it will develop autoantibodies to attack those mucosa and that segment of the bowel. Now we have then microscopic colitis, which is specifically affecting mm -hmm. the colon. And again, it we don't really understand completely why it happened, but mm -hmm. we relate it to certain medication. One of them is acid suppression medication or blood pressure medication mm -hmm. or NSAIDs that cause, again, inflammatory cells like lymphocytes or collagen fiber to deposit underneath the mucosa in the colon and cause significant diarrhea. And then the autoimmune ulcerative colitis and Crohn's mm -hmm. disease are other entities on the end of the spectrum that comes with a severe chronic debilitating disease that can affect the GI tract and with extraintestinal manifestation. Yeah. For example, if she asks about celiac disease in particular, I think the most important thing for celiac disease is to understand the diagnosis, to know how exactly you diagnose it. The blood test will give you a hint. Mm -hmm. So if you have a celiac serology that is positive, then the next step that you have to do an upper endoscopy with a standard protocol to take samples, and there's a way of taking those samples from the second, the first, and the bulb mm -hmm. of the small bowel 
and you send it for a pathologist who specializes in reading these pathology to give you the definite answer. And once you get that diagnosis, I usually send my, my primary care doc a list of things that you should do for your patient when they have celiac disease. And it's, an, it, it's not just gluten-free diet. That's the first step. But they have to meet with a dietitian mm -hmm. to counsel them. They have to have certain blood tests done to make sure that they are not, you know, right. uh, dependent in certain vitamins. And then, you know, bone scan, immunization, and close follow-up with serology and endoscopy. Yeah, good. So this person would benefit from seeing a gastroenterologist. That's mm -hmm. that's for sure. So um, we are getting low on time, so we'll try to get through as many as we can. Um, we had a caller ask, what are the causes of colon polyps, Teresa? That is a multifactorial thing. Yeah. We don't know the exact cause of all colon polyps. Mm -hmm. um, there are some inflammatory polyps, so like a person who has some diverticulitis may develop mm -hmm. an inflammatory polyp. Um, there are precancerous polyps such as adenomas. Um, some can be familial, meaning mm -hmm. that they run in the family, uh, but there isn't a definitive cause. Now, there are it is suspected that there is some environmental mm -hmm. factors that are going into it as well as processed foods in our diet, things like that. Um, and so not one cause, but yeah. just a lot of yeah. causes. And plenty of genetic predisposition like we've talked about as well mm -hmm. too, right? Um, we had a, a Facebook viewer ask, what, food, what foods cause constipation? Are there foods that you avoid, avoid in chronic constipation, Ali? So again, it goes back to having a, a balanced food. Usually, yeah. in general, the American food is, is more constipating because mm -hmm. it's those fast food, unhealthy, lack of fiber, more carb, and those are more constipating. In general, I recommend my patients take a healthy, balanced food. Most people like med you know, Mediterranean or Middle Eastern kind of food because it's balanced. There's salad, there's soup, there's meat, there's balance of, 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 uh, of different type of food and, 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 and texture. In general, I recommend 25 to 30 grams of fibers per day. We cannot get that through food, rarely. Even if you eat a lot mm -hmm. of BGs and, 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 and salad, I, I still think supplementing fibers will help with constipation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think the, the, the balanced food is the key. Mm -hmm. Adding BGs and foods a key to avoid constipation in general. Yeah, good. Um, let's see, we have um, a caller that asked, um, what are the risks of colonoscopy? You answer this all the so, time. Yes. So go ahead. Um, the main risks with colonoscopy is a risk of bleeding as well as a risk of perforation or putting a hole in the mm -hmm. colon. Uh, there are other risks associated with the two, but those are the two main ones. Sure. Um, the risk of bleeding is about a 1% chance. Uh, you know, you could have a little bit of blood in the stool afterwards, mm -hmm. but as long as it's not significant, that's okay. The risk of perforation can range. There's a range sure. for about usually about 0.1 to 0.2 percent mm. uh, chance, and it can be microscopic too. So we may not know about mm. it at the time of colonoscopy. So I do counsel patients to watch for symptoms afterwards mm. and inform us if anything occurs. Mm -hmm. But rare, the bad complications. They are rare. Yes. Pretty, pretty darn rare. Okay, good. Um, let's see. We had a caller who had a stent in the hospital for a GI issue. So I guess let's assume that was a biliary stent. Um, physician told them a, a follow-up colonoscopy might be needed, but is scheduled several months out. Should she do anything to be seen sooner? Ali, I, I guess 
let's assume this was a biliary stent. What's typical as far as aftercare for the biliary stent? I guess let's let's answer that. Yeah, that's where actually my subspecialty of doing interventional mm -hmm. gastroenterology is to deal with <clears throat> stricture or malignancy or or a stent need. Mm -hmm. And the stent can be anywhere, right? I can put a stent, endoluminal stent in the esophagus, sure. small duodenum or colon. We can put a stent in the, in the, in the biliary system as well or the pancreatic duct. Maybe this patient came in with a biliary, you know, uh, pathology like a stone that, or a cholangitis mm -hmm. or an infection in the bile duct that requires a special procedure for the RCP and they put a stent there. Um, the problem sometimes, I will tell you, it, the, the story that I'm hearing here is that if you have a biliary pathology and they were advising her to do a colonoscopy, I think about primary sclerosing cholangitis mm -hmm. because patients with primary sclerosing cholangitis, it's an autoimmune disease affecting the bile duct they might have inflammatory bowel disease or mm -hmm. ulcerative colitis, and you want to make sure you do a colonoscopy to rule out that disease. Sure. So that's, I think, the connection here. Yeah. In primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC, <clears throat> they come with stricture that we need to treat and stent as a last resort. We try to dilate, stretch, and, and eventually, we really need to put a stent. Mm -hmm. But I think that's where the story is going. Okay, good. Um, let's see. We had a, a caller from Hot Springs, Teresa, ask, what is caraphate or sucralfate? What, what is that medicine and what do you use it for? So that medicine is a medicine that helps to regenerate the lining of the stomach um, when you have an er erosive inflammation or even the chemical mm -hmm. gastropathy, uh, the top layer is eroded and so that helps to regenerate it. It works differently than the acid reducing medications mm -hmm. do um, and so we can use it in conjunction with it. It is a very difficult medication to take yeah. though because you cannot take it with other medications or with any food and so it... You have to take it three or four times a day correct. in most cases. So yeah, it is and challenging. So it's yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, good. Let's see. We had um, a caller from Laverne inquiring if we could talk a little bit about exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Um, can you touch on that, Dr. Ali? This might be another misunderstood topic in medicine. Yeah. So exocrine, the, 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 the pancreas has two parts, exocrine and endocrine, meaning that it produces enzymes to help digest food, and those enzymes go through the pancreatic duct into the small bowel and directly affect the food and digest the food. And then there is the endocrine part, which is, you know, the the, the hormones that goes mm -hmm. to the blood and through the bloodstream can control your diabetes, your hunger, and, and the rest of, uh, you know, metabolism. So the exocrine part is, or the exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, when you have scarring of your pancreas to the point that the cells producing those enzymes are not producing them anymore, mm -hmm. and you will have maldigestion and malabsorption. Mm -hmm. We see it in patients who develop chronic pancreatitis for multiple reasons, either from chronic alcohol and smoking uh, sure. use to the point that they really destroy their pancreas or scar their pancreas, or in patients who had um, uh, inherited diseases or inherited pancreatitis from their families at a young age, and, and or in patients who develop pancreatic cancer where the cancer overtake the, the pancreas and, and, and you will become right. uh, in, insufficient. Yeah. Now we have been seeing the same way that we see, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're actually noticing more non-alcoholic fatty pancreas disease where mm. patients have fatty pancreas and they will develop pancreatic insufficiency. Yeah. The treatment of that is replacing it. You yeah. give them the enzymes. 
the challenges with this, and I think most patients will know that it's pretty expensive, unfortunately, mm. and, and the insurance company with the coverage still, it's very expensive to cover those you know, replacement enzymes. Yeah. Generally speaking, you have to have had an injury to your pancreas of some sort to have this disorder, though. Doesn't just happen. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. We got one minute left. We'll do some real short answers. We had a caller from Rapid City ask what can cause acute constipation. That might be more worrisome, Teresa. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So if you have an acute change in your bowel habits, such as constipation, then we worry that there may be something obstructing. Right. Um, it could also be benign mm -hmm. things going on as well. And so, but it, it warrants looking into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Yeah, worth being seen. What age should we get our first colonoscopy? To be brief, Ali. 45. 45. 45 for average risk individuals, and I really encourage everyone at 45, average risk, no family history, no genetics, just average risk. Yeah. Go do your colonoscopy. Do a screening test. I don't want to say colonoscopy. Do a screening test for, for colon cancer, just to be politically correct. Excellent. The winner of our prize tonight is a Facebook viewer named Annie. Thank you, Annie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Searching for trusted medical information or looking for a doctor for your medical needs? Head to the Prairie Doc YouTube channel today to access previous On Call with the Prairie Doc episodes. And make sure to join us most Thursdays on SDPB or streaming on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. A common lament I hear from my patients as they try to discuss a real concern they have about their body. I'm sorry, this is so disgusting. Their cheeks burn with shame as they tell me how their bowels have betrayed them. No matter what the issue is, so many of my patients are mortified discussing their diarrhea, constipation, fecal incontinence. My response always is, you can't gross me out. We talk about poop every day in this clinic. Plenty of things can go wrong in the gastrointestinal tract, and even minor issues can be really disruptive in a person's life. Certain features of bowel dysfunction, like blood in the stool, abdominal pain, and weight loss, might signal more urgency to get a problem diagnosed and fixed. We certainly don't want to miss things like tumors, ulcers, inflammatory bowel disease, and diseases that might affect absorption of nutrients. Oftentimes, none of those red flags are present, but a patient's gastrointestinal symptoms are affecting their ability to function at work or socially. In cases when we either have ruled out or have low suspicion for something bad, we can still offer plenty to help with these symptoms. Sometimes that might mean trials of elimination of food types, dietary changes, addition of fiber, or other medications. GI symptoms might be a side effect of another medication. We frequently have to do some trial and error to find the right combination of things that improve an individual's function, but usually we can do so. In some cases, consulting with gut specialists, dietitians, and even physical therapists can be very helpful. My point here is this, if you are having gut symptoms that are worrying you or disrupting your day-to-day -day life, let's talk about it. Whatever discomfort you have discussing it, I promise, is not shared by your primary care provider or friendly gastroenterologist. We wanna help you get answers. And even if there is not a simple diagnosis or fix to the problem, we want to help you be more comfortable leaving the house without worrying about what your gut will do. So please, 
Don't let feeling grossed out keep you from asking the question. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Wee Trudeau and Dr. Zakaria for volunteering their time to help us learn more about the future of GI issues. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Most people, our home is our safe haven, yet sometimes our home can also pose a risk to our health. Stay healthy out there. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I've been a board member at Healing Words Foundation for the last nine years. Well, my background goes all the way back to DeSmet, South Dakota. Uh, where Rick Holm and I were childhood friends. We are at USD together, and uh, we've managed to stay close friends for our entire lives. And I spent the bulk of my career with Weyerhaeuser Company in the Pacific Northwest, and I led their production forestry research group. Uh, I also spent time on the faculties of Auburn, Virginia Tech, Purdue, and affiliate faculty positions at University of Washington, University of Idaho. And in retirement, I've spent most of my time in the nonprofit world in board service. When Rick and Joni were putting the foundation together several years ago, Rick I would call and ask a question or two, and I usually had the answer, or at least where he could go. And, and so eventually, he and Joni invited me to be a member of the Healing Words Foundation Board, and that's how it happened. The Foundation and, and the Prairie Doc Media Production is really committed to truthful, timely, tested medical information. And there's a lot of information out there now that's uh, either half-truth or no-truth. And of course, being a scientist by profession, we're always seekers of truth, understanding full well that the truth can change with additional research. Every dollar that's pledged or given to Healing Words Foundation unleashes an army of volunteers. You know, the foundation and the Prairie Doc Media puts out really good stuff, very useful things. So there, there's a high return on the investment to invest in the Prairie Doc. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for support.
Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flander District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communication.